This is Archive Atlanta, episode 210, College Park. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday! So this week we're covering College Park, which is its own official separate city from Atlanta, but it's still inside the perimeter, so those are my rules. Inside the perimeter, it counts. And before we talk about its history, let's orient ourselves. So College Park's modern boundaries are in the southeast corner of the perimeter with Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport to the east. Its borders actually go into the airport, which we'll talk about later, and East Point along the north. After 1814, a series of treaties whittled away at the Muscogee lands, and by 1825, Chief McIntosh ceded all Lower Creek land in Georgia. By 1827, we had rid the Muscogee Creek of the entire state, and land was dispersed to white settlers and land lotteries. The first white landowners in College Park were Alexander and Rose Ann Rattery, who settled here in the 1830s. Rose Ann died, and he later married someone named Nancy. By 1855, he was joined by W.N. McConnell. Now, both men are listed as farmers and in total enslaved 17 people, men, women, and children between the ages of 2 and 40. The Civil War comes to Atlanta in 1864, and the fortification line that I've spoken about before, especially in the Grand Park episode, reached through what is today Woodward, Woodward's campus. There was a whole five families living in College Park during the war years, but that would change in post-bellum Atlanta. The Atlanta and West Point Railroad construction began in 1849 and was completed by 1854, and it ran right through the center of future College Park. The train depot that stands today, it was built in 1917, but it replaced the original building that was there you know, in the 1850s. So as we all know, train bring speculators and developers. And in June of 1890, the papers announced that the Manchester Land and Town Company, led by Eugene Blaylock, had purchased 900 acres along the railroad to develop a manufacturing town named Manchester, which was a nod to the British industrial city. Like most land chosen by developers, it was six feet higher than Atlanta's elevation and had five to six natural springs. And the Blaylocks were a pioneer Georgia family, having come to Fayetteville and Jonesboro in the 1700s. Eugene's father owned hundreds of properties, and Eugene appears to have kept up that family business. So once the beauty of this land is experienced by visitors, they know, they're like, why would you make this an industrial town? You know, like this should really be a prime residential area. By the summer of 1891, the Southern Military Academy had formed from a blend of the Moreland Park Military Academy and the Georgia Military Institute. And so the reason they made this school was because the Manchester Land and Town Company donated 25 acres for them to open in Manchester. By August of that year, several trains from Atlanta were bringing prospective buyers who turned into new lot owners. And then just a month later, all of those initial lots had been sold. One of these visitors was named Dr. J.W. Lee, and he said the town should be named Cambridge because it was becoming an educational center. And so a September meeting of these landlot owners brought in more suggestions and more changes. And so everyone's essentially meeting and, you know, they're like, well, what do we name ourselves? And they wanted to identify themselves with Atlanta, the good parts, but they didn't want to be associated with Atlanta's vices like bar rooms or prostitution. They also wanted a place of high-class residences and no manufacturing in any form. 
So Dr. Hawthorne moves to adopt the name of West Atlanta, and then Manchester is put into like second place and kind of retained for a pending application for a charter. I don't know what happens between then and the actual charter filing, but in October of 1891, Manchester is incorporated and they elect a mayor and four councilmen. In that same year, Dr. Charles Cox promised to move the Southern Female College from LaGrange to Manchester. And the college was formed in 1842 in LaGrange, and Cox's agreement with the developers of Manchester was a huge deal. Because with the military school, and now this woman's college, it's really centering this town as an academic bastion. The problem is, in some unknown drama, Cox decided not to move the school and the deal fell through. And so the city leaders of Manchester found a new solution. By deeding 25 acres and donating $5,500 to a Mr. L.W. Stanton, he formed the Southern Baptist Female College, a 200-room building, which at the time was the largest educational institutional building in the South, was designed and completed in 1892. So now we have our two schools. The town is legally called Manchester, but by the summer of 1892, there was a whole volley of new name suggestions coming in. And it's very funny to read these and think that we could be calling College Park something like Attica, Minerva, the colleges, Collegia, or Ledra. So how do we get College Park? They ended up having a formal contest. The prize was a housing lot in this place that is yet to be named. They had 8,000 names submitted, and the winning entry, College Park, was submitted by Mary Melinda Gordon Roper, who was the first cousin of Dr. Charles Cox from the college and the only sister of General John B. Gordon. By December of 1895, the Georgia General Assembly passed a law changing the name of Manchester to College Park, and then the avenues were named for famous colleges. Rugby, Mercer, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Princeton, and then the streets were named for famous men. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Jackson, Lee, Napoleon, and then other streets honored locally famous men, like J. Matt Walker, who was the first mayor of College Park, J.B. Hawthorne, who was president of the Southern Baptist College, uh, McCrory, who was um, one of the first general store owners, Eugene Blaylock, who was again president of the land company, uh, David Sloan, who was the first postmaster, so on and so forth. Now, in a funny twist of fate, in 1895, the Southern Baptist Female College is transferred to Charles Cox, same guy who wouldn't move his school from LaGrange, and the name is then changed to Cox College. In 1897, the Southern Military Academy closed, and then Colonel J.C. Woodward opened a boys' preparatory military school on the site. Now, he named it the Georgia Military Academy, although today we, of course, know it as Woodward Academy. Now, the school remained all-male until becoming co-educational in 1963, and then was actually renamed Woodward Academy in 1966. But let's go back to 1902. The streetcar finally comes to College Park in that year, over a decade of attempts and rumors and speculation that it's coming. And the first mentions of dummy streetcar lines being run from East Point and Hapeville, again, 1891. But it really doesn't get there till 11 years later. In 1908, College Park resident John Temple Graves ran for vice president of the United States, and that put this very small city on the nation's radar. The first garden club in the entire Atlanta area was started in College Park in 1909 by Mary Louise Crenshaw. She later served as president of Garden Clubs of Georgia and the State Federation of Women's Clubs. 
I want to back up on her family tree for a second because the Palmer House is a landmark in the city and it was built by her parents. So Dr. William Crenshaw was a dentist who married Alex Cox, sister of Charles Cox. Uh, Her brother was an architect who designed the home in 1892. Now, Dr. Crenshaw was an avid gardener and Mary got her love of it from him. Mary and her husband, Oscar Palmer, were both professors at the military academy when it opened, and Mary Palmer is actually instrumental in the horticultural history of College Park, so she did a lot of planting guides for individual homes, and she really carried on Charles Cox's ideas. Speaking of schools, College Park's school history is really complex because as a separate city, they did not participate in the Atlanta public school system but they were participating in Fulton County school system. And there's a lot of drama there. Just, of course, you're part of a large county. You're kind of fighting for funds. And so I think in 1917 is when I noticed that they voted to withdraw and create their own school system. The school that had already been built, I think that was Alonzo Richardson High. Now it had been built for 350 students and 10 teachers. And at this point by 1917, it had 600 kids and 17 teachers. And so they added the George Longino School in the 1920s. There was a Samuel Young School in 1927 and then McLaren High School in 1942. I need to mention the College Park Women's Club because their clubhouse is kind of a fixture on Main Street. But it began as a very, very small, exclusive club that met inside Cox College. But by the late 1920s, it had over 100 members. And in 1927, they completed a clubhouse designed by architect Charles Hobson, which again still stands at Main Street and Rugby. The 1920s were a boom for Atlanta with Forward Atlanta. Um, I've talked about this in other episodes, but it brings in corporations and employees. And College Park really benefits from this growth in population. And it also becomes a place that many white families move to as they move further out from Atlanta proper. And it's hard its hard for people, I think, unless you grew up in those times, to think of East Point or College Park as like the Alpharetta and Miltons of today. But that's, that's very much what they were. They were white, middle, and upper middle class suburbs. And I've also talked about this in other episodes, but places like East Point, College Park had really strong Ku Klux Klan presence. In 1927, the College Park KKK sponsored a minstrel show in City Hall to raise funds for their quote-unquote charity work. And I'm not kidding. This is like a very normal article. And it wasn't something to be ashamed of. In 1946, there was a highly publicized flogging case where a black boy from Atlanta was visiting College Park. A carload of Klan members pulled up next to him, pull a gun on him, take him to a deserted spot near the airport, and whip him. The story of College Park is intricately tied to the story of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And I covered the airport itself in episode 146. If you have not listened yet, you should go do that. But in the early 1920s, almost 300 acres of land were leased by College Park and the city of Atlanta for the Candler Field slash Atlanta Municipal Airport. But by 1940, the Georgia Supreme Court had approved efforts to condemn 140 acres for more expansions. In 1942, there were 72 new homes built in Airport Park, which was a development of 20 acres west of the airport. And they were using this like title, I think title six federal housing funds and stuff like that. But I don't think anyone at that time understood how quickly and how far the airport was going to expand. 
1956, the CAA requirements stated that clear zones must exist at the end of runways. And so this meant that 200 to 500 homes, along with trees and, you know, everything else involved in that acreage, had to be removed. In 1957, there is another push, the City of College Park purchasing 17 homes for demolition. And I'm glancing over this. Obviously, this is a 20-minute episode about a neighborhood, which you can't talk about everything. Um, But I highly recommend the book called Flight Path, and I'm going to link that in the show notes. But it is a kind of a story of the airport and these neighborhoods that have disappeared. By 1960, the population of College Park is just over 23,000 people, and it is still majority white. And in 1964-65, the construction of Interstates 85 and I-285 impact the neighborhood immensely. And Black people are really fighting for this fair political representation. So I have yet to really talk about College Park's Black residents. Everyone I've talked about so far is white. And that's because prior to the 1960s, there's just not much about them. Um, There was not a large enough population, so to speak, to appear in the news, especially a white newspaper. Um, But that story really changes in the 1960s. In that decade, the Black residents of College Park are dealing with the same issues they're dealing with in other neighborhoods, especially urban renewal. And so in 1962, there is an organization called the College Park Civic Association for the Protection of Property Values. And I'm chuckling a little bit because these organizations existed everywhere. There's one in Mosley Park. There's one in the West End. Like, it's just a group of white people getting together and like slapping on a really long name so they can essentially fight to keep their neighborhoods white. And so this group is fighting against housing that was going to be built near Newton Estates that would be for Black families that had been displaced by some urban renewal in another part of College Park. By 1968, College Park was redistricted into some highly gerrymandered sections, but it wasn't really contested until the 1970s. So that plan from 1968 was never submitted to the Justice Department as is required by law. And so by 1970, College Park was 30% Black, and they were, again, fighting for representation. So the federal government became, all the way up to the federal government, had to step in, redraw the districts, and that formed Ward 2, which was a majority Black ward, which then went on to elect Michael Hightower, who was the first Black elected official in College Park. And Ward 2 is really fascinating. They had a history, I think, exhibit they did many years ago um, in a museum or down in College Park. Um, But they made the news again in 1982 because the airport, whether the city or the federal government, was trying to buy their homes for airport expansion. And these people were like, no, we're just, we don't want to go. And there's, I think they're quoting the government agencies in the paper and they're like, "Um, oh, okay. Like we've never really had that answer. I guess like we'll figure it out. The reality is in the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of properties were purchased using what was called the Airport Noise Land Reuse Plan, which allowed the airport to apply for federal funding to purchase property that was designated as noise land. And so between the 1980s and the early 2000s, the city of Atlanta, again, federal government, purchased roughly 320 acres of property containing houses and churches and, you know, commercial buildings. And this is all kind of adjacent to the west side of downtown College Park. Now, if you have not visited College Park, I am probably making it sound like a wasteland surrounded by an airport, but that is not the case. The city is full of historic homes and churches and buildings, and we kind of have to go back to the 1970s again real quick to understand why. 
1978, the College Park Historical Society was formed to fight Northwood expansion of the airport. And they were able to register 850 structures across 606 acres and create a Main Street kind of historic district all on the National Register of Historic Places. Now, if you listen to the older episode that I can't remember with um, Charles Lawrence about how that all works, the National Register is actually really a protection against things that include federal funding. So this was a genius idea. Yay, College Park Historical Society. Um, But it's also one of the reasons that any of these things are still left for us to see. I cannot end an episode about College Park without talking about rap or hip-hop. And I say this only because as a New York kid, raised exclusively on like Biggie, Jay-Z, and Wu-Tang, the only thing I knew about Atlanta hip-hop was College Park. Like, I kid you not, it was like the only thing I knew from, you know, one song I heard that made it up to the Northeast. And so in my little tiny bit of research here doing this episode, I found out that College Park was home to Ludacris, 2 Chains, Jermaine Dupri, Rich the Kid, Pastor Troy, and Cap G. So there you have it, the story of College Park. I highly recommend visiting if you haven't. There's actually a perfect opportunity coming up the end of March. The Georgia Trust has what is called a spring ramble. It's really just a three-day tour of homes, and one of those days is in College Park. So my husband and I went a couple weekends ago. We just kind of walked around. Main Street is wonderful. It has like bars and restaurants. There was tons of people out, and then we went just down all the streets so I could see the houses. Um, But I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the house tour if you guys want to go. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, There is a link in the show notes if you want to support. I hope everyone has a great weekend and talk to you next week.